Okay, well, our guest this morning is Dave Alpern. Dave is the president of Joe Gibbs Racing, which is a, a premier franchise, not just for NASCAR, but really of all sports. And Dave is speaking to us from Daytona this morning, where, of course, the uh, uh, Sunday's running of the Daytona 500 is the kickoff of the 2021 uh, NASCAR series. He's already had some success down there on, on Tuesday. Uh, and, you know, if we have Denny come through for us on Sunday, then it will be uh, three back-to-back -back wins for the Daytona 500, which makes, uh, makes him in an exclusive category, really exciting. Uh, now, before we get started, Dave, I just want to thank you for joining us on such an extraordinary week, um, and, and we appreciate it so much. Thank you. Good morning. Yeah, well, good morning. Thanks for, for having me, and this is, uh, this is Joe Gibbs Racing's 30th Daytona 500, if you can believe that. Uh, personally, it's my 28th, and uh, it's a great tradition to be down in Florida. Not a bad state to be in in the month of February. Uh, and so, yeah, we're gearing up. It's a busy week, uh, um, but I was uh, thrilled to be asked to do this and uh, wish I could be in person with you, but this is the next best thing. So, so thanks for having me. Yeah, great. It's a little bit warmer there than it is It today. is definitely a little warmer. I saw where it's, I think the high is 80. Um, so we're significantly yeah. behind that today. <laughs> and it is a dreary day too. Our topic this morning is resolve, and Dave is only the perfect person to help us uh, look at that concept and what it means in life. Uh, Patrick, let's look at the definition of resolve. Let's, let's look at that concept. What is resolve? Well, to be bold and have staying power. You know, it's about the long game. It's not about what we would like to have happen in the next week, month, or even year. It's, it's the power to stay in. Also, gritty determination, something that is sometimes messy. It's, it's certainly not easy and requires uh, a little bit of good old muscle uh, when, it's, when it's difficult. To persist in a moment of doubt. If you're like me, Occasionally, there is a nanosecond where you have an opportunity to lean back or lean in. You know, it's, it's just a slice of time. Uh, if resolve is at hand, then you lean in. And then finally, to be tenacious about what you're willing, what you will not do. And I think it was Walt Whitman said, uh, never do anything that insults your soul. And that is resolve as well. So with that, Dave, you know, you went from being an unpaid intern at Joe Gibbs Racing, and that was quite a while ago, but, you know, how did that happen and how has Resolve played a part in your life? Thanks for reminding me how long ago that happened, but it was, uh, it was a long time ago. It's funny, I still... Um, Oftentimes, and I'm being honest, even, even this morning, I, I still approach things mentally like I'm that intern. There are often times where I'm in a meeting or I'm doing something and I'm thinking, why are they talking to me? You know what I mean? And, and because you kind of you go into things one way and you, you know, 
again, I'm the president of the company now, but there's often I'm in a meeting thinking, why, why, why do you have me in the meeting? And I think, oh yeah, okay, I guess I, I guess I need to be in this. But um, I like the definitions you have up there, you know. And I think just really simply, just again, resolve being the, the sort of the determination to either do or overcome something difficult. And often when we want to do something difficult, we're also at the same time overcoming difficulties. And again, all of us have our own sort of whether they're internal conflicts or external conflicts going on in our lives. I think for me, um, you know, what, what shaped me is, is understanding. I think it's really important that you understand how you're wired because everybody's different. Um, you have to understand what's important to you. For me, something from an early age that was sort of ingrained in me was not wanting to let down people that were important to me. And so when I was a kid, I was the only son of my dad, a very high achieving. My dad was a I could do a whole talk on my dad. He was a, actually a CIA operative. My, my siblings and I were all born in different countries. My dad spoke multiple languages and briefed presidents. And I was his only son and had this innate pressure to not let my dad down. You know, I, I, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to be what my dad is. But I, so, and, and I was a late bloomer. So I was the smallest guy in my high school and I had Tourette's. I don't know if any of you are familiar with Tourette's syndrome. And, and you know, when you're in high school and you're undersized and you're twitching, you know, again, it, it was almost like a Rudy complex where I was the, I, I just felt like I, you know, I can't let my dad down. And so, and that continued when I got to Joe Gibbs Racing. Um, Coach Gibbs was like my idol. And so I got there knowing I'm not the best at anything. I really don't have a specific skill. Um, so I just need to not let coach down. <laughs> so, it, you know, I think from an early age, it was this, um, this determination to, you know, make those around me, you know, again, for good or for bad, that was sort of my motivation. It was, it was to not let down those that were really important to me. And so, um, and, and I can say like most people do, you know, that journey, um, I, I call them Lieutenant Dan moments. If you remember the movie Forrest Gump with Lieutenant Dan at the top of the mast, sort of having it out with God. I've had a lot of those in my life where you're just kind of going, are you serious? What's the deal? You know, bring it on, you know? And, <laughs> and so, um, but again, I think for me, it was understanding what, how I'm wired. And again, one of those ways was not wanting to let down people that are important to me. And again, coach has been one of those. And so when you, when you say, how did it happen? you know, and I'll talk a little bit later about just, it, it was not planned. Um, and again, when you work for a family business, there's kind of a glass ceiling, which for me was okay. I, I work for a family business. I'm not in the family. I'm kind of as high as I'm ever going to be. And then through a crazy set of circumstances, I ended up becoming the president of a family business that I'm not a member of the family of. Yeah. Yeah. And you went from being an unpaid intern I understand, to being the t-shirt guy. And in your <laughs> book, in your book yeah. which we want to tell people about too, you write about how to make yourself indispensable. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, I appreciate that. So interestingly, I was, so really for 10 to 15 years of my career, my wheelhouse was consumer products. And so again, coach called me the t-shirt guy which was great early on. And then I started getting a complex about that. And I, I knew I needed to create a niche. I needed to create value. And there's a section of my book calling delivering more value than you're paid. And when I speak to students all the time, I say, if you want job security, remember this one lesson, deliver more than you cost and you will always have a job. So, and, and it doesn't matter you, when you're an unpaid intern, it's a pretty low bar <laughs> for delivering more than you cost 
because you cost nothing. Um, and so I think for me early on, I actually, and again, I don't have time to get into the story, but um, and I tell students this was pre-internet, so I, I had no way to figure out how to make t-shirts, but I, Joe was still coaching the Redskins, uh, which is what they were called and what he was doing at the time. And so I figured out how to make t-shirts and said, look, we made Joe Gibbs racing t-shirts and sell them up at RFK stadium where they play. Those would probably be a big deal. So I went out, figured out how to make t-shirts, dropped them on consignment. They sold out and the rest is history. I became the t-shirt guy. Now all of a sudden I became an expert in licensing and made all of our NASCAR merchandise. And that led to the next assignment, which led to the next assignment. And so, um, again, it was, uh, uh, if you, if you read my journal, I have 20 years of journal entry of kind of me complaining again, sort of these moments of not being totally utilized. And I'm tired of being the t-shirt guy. There's so much more. And then I became, you know, I kind of became our in-house PR person. And then I sort of each little area as we were a small business, you know, keep in mind, we had 15 people when I started. Now we have over 500, but we had to do a lot of different things. And so with each niche that I would pick up, I, I just never felt like, you know, I've got to do more. I've got, and so the, the idea of being indispensable was just, I want to be, coach would always talk about the greatest players he had on his team. And they were never the players that you would think they were. They were never the all-stars. They were the utility players that could do everything, that never complained, that had a great attitude. And I thought, I'm never going to be the all-star of any team, but I can be that, that guy. I can be the utility MVP that never says that's not my job, that, that never complains, that, that, that is a fountain, you know, in every, not a drain. And that's always, and so that was me. So I, you know, again, I said, they may give me little things to do. I'm going to be great at those little things because maybe someday they'll give me big stuff to do. And so early on I did, I mean, I put stickers on race cars. I was like, I went to college and I'm putting stickers on race cars, but again, they were not going to hear me say, well, that isn't my job. So whatever it was I was doing. And again, little did I know um, I was being prepared for a job that I never expected ever. Um, and, and had I not done each of those little things, I wouldn't have been picked to be the guy now doing this job because I wouldn't have been equipped for it. So all those days of complaining, I had no idea this is preparation for something that you, you know, you have no idea what's coming. Wow. Now, Dave, you suffered a life-changing loss, of course. Uh, your best friend since seventh grade. And, um, you know, really, uh, you, you called yourself the co-pilot to J.D. Gibbs for uh, his, his life and yours. And he passed just a couple of years ago, I think, at the very mm -hmm. young age of 49. And I know that it had a huge impact. His life and his passing had a huge impact on you. So just talk to us a little bit about your resolve to move mm -hmm. forward and uh, not only as, a, as an individual, but to move the organization forward. Yeah, so for those of you who don't know, so Coach Gibbs started the race team and he has two sons, J.D. and, and Coy. And so, you know, like a family business, your expectation is you're going to groom your child to take over. And so JD, JD and I met in seventh grade. That's how I was connected to the Gibbs family. I, I had no biological brothers, but JD was definitely my brother. And um, we, we, we came to work together and JD was that guy, just a quick glimpse. He was the quarterback of our football team in high school. His dad was the coach of the 
NFL team. So you can imagine JD was the most popular guy at school. He would um, in the cafeteria, just sit at random tables and pop down and go, Hey, my name's JD. What's your name? And they're like, we know you're JD. And it wasn't, and it was because he reckoned, he taught me early the power of influence and, and how you can impact other people. And so JD was that kind of guy. He was the first person I ever met where faith was actually real to him. It wasn't a, um, you know, he had a, he had a compass, he had a true North and everything he did was a reflection of that, everything. And so, um, yeah, no, I mean, I came and I was kind of the chief of staff to, to, to coach and JD and I was in a comfort zone again, I, many years of being frustrated of not being utilized and Hey, I'm not just, I'm not just your buddy, you know, take me seriously. And there was always this complex that other people, you know, didn't take me seriously because I was just JD's friend. And, um, and so I always kind of lived with that, but um, I remember I would always think, and I would tell my wife, you know, gosh, I can't believe the pressure JD goes to bed with every night, knowing all of those families depend on him to make good decisions. I'm so glad that's not on me. And, you know, when JD got sick about six years ago, um, the family came to me and asked if I would take over for JD. And, you know, what was just, what was so crazy was, um, you know, now all of those decisions were, I, I did have to worry about them. And, and I remember people were congratulating me for becoming the president of Joe Gibbs Racing. And I was miserable because it was my best friend's job. I didn't want this. This wasn't what I wanted. You know, um, this isn't how it was supposed to go. When I got on the airplane, I didn't want to be sitting next to coach thinking, coach is thinking this was supposed to be my son. And coach was always gracious and never made me feel that way. But I felt that way because if I were a dad, I would want that to be my son, not my son's friend. And so there was, there was a resolve for me to make, you know, and there still is to this day. I mean, it drives me is, is I want to honor the trust that they put in me. I don't want to let JD down. I want to do things the way he would do it. JD was the, he was the heart and soul of our culture at Joe Gibbs racing. And I feel like I'm the link. I am the one person that knew JD the best. So it's my job to keep that culture, to be that link, to do things the way JD would, um, you know, people before profits, treating people like a soul, not a transaction. You know, th there's those fundamental um, ways that I think we do business that are different than many other companies that I learned from JD. It was inherent in him. He did not care about, I, I mean, he was not motivated by money. He was motivated by people. And so it was always people first. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, again, I, I could sum it up treating people like a soul and, you know, not looking over someone's shoulder for who's next. It's looking directly at that person and understanding this person is a human that has a soul that has goals that, and, and, and so for me, every day is, is much less about winning. Look, I want to win because I think we're called to be great at what we do, but why do we want to win? We want to win because it gives us a platform. It earns the right to do even better things, to have influence in our community, to, to have an audience with people that you can impact. It's not winning for winning's sake because the trophy what are the, I mean, we don't even have a place to store all the trophies that we have, you know, so what good is a trophy going to do you? Um, and the last thing I'll say about JD, you know, JD's funeral, I just remember people saying, wow, I hope people say stuff like that about me at my funeral. And so when you talk about a life well lived, that's another goal for me is to have a legacy like JD did where people will say, Dave wasn't about winning a bunch of races because they literally will mean nothing. But he was about taking that and using that um, platform for things that are a lot more important than races and championships. Yeah. Wow. 
Well, you have a book coming out, which we're really excited about. It's called Taking the Lead. And in that book, you write about being a fountain and not a dream. So tell us, what do you you mean by that? I think that's part of my, you know, when I talk to students about becoming indispensable and how do you deliver more value than you cost? That's a great example is there are things that are that are a choice that you make every day and the fountain drain thing. And again, that's certainly not an original thought that's been used before, but I, I use the illustration. I have a glass um, window in my office. So I have about a two second warning before anybody walks in my door, I see them. And there are literally two types of people. There's two categories. There's the one category of person who, when I see them coming by my window, I sigh and I go, oof, this is gonna be painful because I know they're going to come in and they're going to complain or they're going to give me a problem without a solution or they're going to point a finger at somebody or what have you. And then there's the person who, when they walk by, I leap out of my chair to greet them at the door because I know they are about to breathe life into me just by what they say. And let me, let me be clear. There are stressful jobs. There's ER workers and there's people. It doesn't mean you can't come with bad news. It doesn't mean you can't come with a crisis, but there are ways that you can you know, (laughs) you can deliver that. There are body language things. There are, you know, are you coming rolling up your sleeves saying, I'm, I'm going to jump into battle with you. And Hey, I'm going to, or, or are you handing it off to say, you know, I'm out and I'm leaving. And there are really, that's one small example, but that is literally a choice that we make every day. Is are you going to be a fountain or are you going to be a drain? Are you that person that, again, when, when someone sees your name on the invite list to a meeting, are they smiling because of that? Or are they, oh, you know, oh, geez, this is going to be difficult, you know? Um, and honestly, it sounds simple, but it is, I mean, y'all, I know right now you're thinking of people, you know, it's a, cho- it's a choice. And I, I have never understood why someone, you know, that is so easy. It's simple. And, and the bottom line is we often want to work with people that we like or people that, you know, and I, again, another thing is being a compliment, not a clone. We don't want clones of ourselves. You can be your own unique, authentic person, but everyone wants to be around someone who's a fountain. So when you're in a hiring decision and you ask people who are former employers, that's going to come out. Oh, this is, this is the ultimate team person. They're going to build it. They're going to make everybody better. Are you making those around you look better? Are you, are you breathing life into every transaction or are you draining the life out of it? And, and are you, are you, are you thinking me, 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 instead of you, 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 you know, or, and again, that, that you can describe it any number of ways, but fountain and drain is a simple one that to me is just, you know, it's a choice we make has nothing to do with skill or talent. It's a choice. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you're exactly right. Everybody I know, like me is thinking of the drains in our life. (laughs) Um, tell me about uh, a culture of yes. That's another chapter in the book. What is a culture of yes? Well, it was interesting. It was born out of a meeting we had with a partner, one of our partners, um, uh, you know, Toyota, we went for a really tough, they're our, they're our biggest partner. And we flew out to California where they were based and, um, one of their executives, and this is in my book. And so I, I asked Ed permission to tell the story because you kind of make me sound like a jerk. But he said, he goes, he said, I might've been at the time, but he said, we need to have a meeting. And he, he pulled us in and there were several of the top executives. And they said, you know what your problem is? You guys are developing a culture of no. And what, what he meant by that was they felt like every time they were asking us something, it was, we're not doing that. We're not, we're not going there. And so, 
you know, obviously me and one of the other guys that was with me, we got on the airplane and we were strategizing. We got the whole staff together and we got a whiteboard and we said, we need to become a culture of yes. What does that look like? And we started writing down all the things and what it meant obviously wasn't say yes to everything, but we're in the customer service business. All of us, all of you, whatever you do, you're in a customer service business. And so, you know, um, the idea was you can't say yes to every request, but how can you go in it with a posture of, again, when you're talking about delivering more value than you're paid, that, that applies to business too. How can you deliver more value to their customer to over deliver and go into it with a posture of we're either going to meet your request or we're going to come up with an alternative maybe that's even better instead of immediately leading saying we're not doing that. We can't do that. How is it? Okay, let's 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 figure this out together. Let, it, it's an attitude. How do we go above and beyond? And, and, and so we just call it creating a culture of yes to where um, you know, again, you're, you're, the people that work with you, your, your customers, your clients, they know these guys, Joe Gibbs Racing, they are going to over-deliver. If we ask them something, they are going to jump through hoops, not how can we skirt around it with as little as possible or, or, or you know, how can, we, how can we try to get away without, oh, gosh, that's really going to take a lot. That's going to take a lot of work. Uh, we're, not, we're not doing that. Well, that's, that's not an option anymore. <laughs> we survive on our customers. And in NASCAR, 80% of our revenue comes from sponsors. And so wh what does that mean? 80% of our times goes to keeping those sponsors happy, uh, which means making them look good, you know, do, doing, you know, coming up with ways to um, over deliver so that when it comes, ju just as I say, if, if you, if you're indispensable at your work, when it comes time to pick who gets to stay and who, who maybe do we have to lay off? You want them to always say, no, 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 we're not touching that person. The same goes for our customers. When, one, when, our, when our customers, and they spend a lot of money on us, when they look at that line item on the board and they're comparing us to other pro sports or social media influencers or other things that they're spending their money, when they get to Joe Gibbs Racing, we want them to go, uh-uh, untouchable. They, we, we, we couldn't even imagine our culture without them because, and that comes from creating a culture of yes, not from saying no all the time, you know, so. Yeah, great. Yeah. Yeah, Dave, I used to work with a fellow, we, we called him Dr. No. So, oh. well, let, me, let me share, it's a funny, funny quick story on that. And again, I share this in the book as well. We, we, FedEx is one of our biggest partners. And when we first went to meet with FedEx in Memphis and when Fred Smith, the CEO was in there and it was all, and we were warned by the owner of, of the Washington football team, who was also a FedEx partner before we went in. He said, there's this one guy who we call Mr. No. And if he's in the meeting, you have no shot of getting a sponsorship. Well, sure enough, he was sitting right next to Fred Smith. So we all looked at each other. We're like, okay, great. Um, and so the bottom line is not only did we get a sponsorship, we're on our 17th year with FedEx. And that guy is retired and on our advisory board for Joe Gibbs Racing now. He's such an advocate of our company because we over-delivered for them. Um, and it's a great story that we use all the time that, you know, we, we even won that guy over. <laughs> so, and that was a challenge, but, um, you know, so it's funny that you said, you know, yeah. Dr. No. Dr. No. Yeah. Another chapter from the book is entitled Fitting the Joe Mold. So what, what in the world is that? <laughs> well, I mentioned it a little bit earlier about how the Joe mold isn't always the star player or the one with the most talent. It's often the, they used to use this example. They used to watch game film 
from games where they were either winning or losing by 20 or more points late in the game. And you'd think, well, why would you watch game film for that? He said, because that's when you find out who the people are that really care. Are people playing 100% when the game is already decided? Are they, are they fighting their guts out to use a Joe term? <laughs> you know, eh, fighting their guts out. That's kind of his <laughs> That's kind of his thing. And he wants those type of people that you want in your trenches. So fitting the Joe mold, he's got a, he kind of has a phrase, he calls them butt busters. Um, and it's just people that are, you know, um, you know, again, it's, 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 and it's interesting because in his hierarchy, he would say talent is third most important, not first. It's character and it's heart. So obviously what type of, what type of human being are they? Are they, you know, are they of high character? And then, um, in terms of heart, how much do they care? Again, is this a person that, you know, is going to wake up and go to bed caring about your company and your objective and your mission? Um, or is this somebody that's just punching the clock? And, and again, part of that's his generation. I mean, he's old school. He wants you present. He wants you there. This remote thing does not do well with him. He's not really realized that you can actually be productive if you're not sitting at your desk at his beck and call, but he's getting there. Um, but, but again, part of that's generation part of that's, you know, he was a coach where they were all in a war room all day and they were always present. But so the Joe mold, again, it's, it's character, heart, talent. It's being what he calls a butt buster, which are those people again, that would go to war for when you, you know, um, uh, when you're in, when you're, when you're going to battle, um, you're like, who, who are the people that I want with me that I know have my back that when there's, when there's a crisis, they're not going to turn and run. They're going to literally link arms and go in with me. Those, those are the people he wants. Because again, all of us, life is maybe my job's unique, but I literally feel like all it is, is one big crisis. It's like one after another. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, in the early days, we had one driver, one sponsor, and it might've been a crisis a week. Now it's, it's 20 a day. And all you're doing is resolving conflict with people and, and issues. And you want your team to be in it with you, not, ooh, you know, uh, you know, sorry, I'm, you know, I can't, you know, I, you know that if I text or call that person and, and we all have our go-to people, like I said, early on in my career, I wanted to be that person for coach. I wanted to be the one that coach said, if I get one pick, I want Dave in the room because Dave's wise or Dave will go at, you know, and so we all need those people around us in work. We need them in life too. So, but the Joe mold is, yeah, it's, it's not always what you would think. It's not always the star player. And he loved, you know, when I talk about compliments, not clones, he didn't want clones. When you look at some of his favorite players, it was the, it was the guys that were sometimes, you know, kind of the wildest characters. I think of Clinton Portis who used to dress up in characters when he would do press conferences, Gary Clark, uh, John Riggins, you know, there, there was these different, you know, often even flamboyant different players, but Joe loved them because they were unique and they were such a good compliment to the rest of the team. So he's not afraid, you know, don't be afraid around, you know, your, your boss or the people that you work with to, to be your own authentic self because your team needs a you, they don't need another somebody else. And that's advice I always give to people. Don't sit in a room and just nod your head all the time. Disagree. Again, you can do it as a fountain, but disagree. Give, give your opinion, be, be unique. And Joe, coach loves that. So that's part of the Joe mode too. Oh, that's, that's so great. <laughs> there are so many diamonds in this talk that 
everyone is taking away. I want to mention Valerie Gladden, my buddy with MRN. You probably uh, know Valerie. I know uh, Winston certainly does. She says she just pre-ordered your book on Amazon, Taking the Lead. So it's already available for pre-ordering on Amazon. Tell us a little bit about that book and and why you felt you had to write it. So, well, uh, real quick, if I can give you some background, I mentioned my dad before. So my dad, my dad passed away 10 years ago and he, when he got cancer, he started actually writing a book about his life and he had to get government clearance for some of the stories. And, and I remember he got about three chapters through it. And I, I told my dad, Hey, can I record all of this? Because, you know, you are sick. And just in case you don't finish it, I'd love to finish it for you. And of course, my dad, ever the optimist, I'm going to be fine. Well, he, he wasn't, and he didn't, and he didn't finish it. And he deprived me and future generations of knowing his story. And so it was 10 years ago, I told my wife, look, my story is not nearly as, and at that time, JD wasn't even sick. So I had no idea what my story was about to become. But I said, I'm going to write a book because I want our boys, we have three boys and, and their kids just to know dad, their dad's story of kind of God's faithfulness in my life and sort of my, just my journey. And maybe it'll encourage some of them. So I started writing an outline for it. And that, that was the inspiration for it was my dad not finishing his book. Um, and so for me, it's, it's, you know, really as the person who I honestly have probably spent more time with coach in the last 30 years than anybody, I've been on more planes, um, you know, and there's not a lot of people that are in two pro sport hall of fame. So I've learned a lot from him and I've learned a lot from JD. And so I really, I talked number one about kind of the secret star success. And there's five sections of the book. The first we've talked about is delivering more value than, uh, than you cost. The second section is creating a winning culture. What does that look like? The third is staying on mission as a company and as a person. Um, uh, and then the fourth section is treating people like a soul and not a transaction. And it talks about relationships and, and in business. And I kind of look at traits of the great companies that I've worked with. Um, and then the fifth section is winning in life. And that's where I, I, I kind of bring it full circle, my story about JD and what I learned from JD. And um, all of my proceeds from the book are going to the JD Gibbs Legacy Fund in honor of him. And so, again, the, the, my motivation for writing the book really is I'm hoping um, yeah, I'm hoping the things that sort of the principles that have fueled our race team can encourage people and that my story of honestly being a, <laughs> you know, not the best at anything, an unpaid intern that was once working in a broom closet and thought I had grossly failed my father, um, you know, became the president of a pro sports team, the winningest one actually in our, in NASCAR history, um, it, that that can be an encouragement. Cause even with coach, you know, I read all Joe's books. He's my idol. But in some ways, I don't relate to Joe because he's so far out of my, you know, the greatest coach of all time. Everyone can relate to me because <laughs> I am the average, you know, I'm just the average person. Um, so uh, that, that was kind of the inspiration behind it. And uh, um, again, I originally just wanted to write it so my boys would know a lot of the stories in case, you know, someday I can't tell all of them to them. And so. I hope, uh, again, I, I appreciate that. It's kind of still very weird talking about me writing a book. Even my boys, when I told them, they're like, what are you writing a book about? <laughs> so. Well, let me just say there's nothing yeah. average about you, yeah. Dave Alpern, nothing. And we are going to send everybody the link to pre-order that book in case you're interested. I know that this is a family tradition for the Alperns and you have a gorgeous family and that you're all going to be uh, 
celebrating just the togetherness that you have over the weekend, but we are absolutely pulling for Denny Hamlin to win and make this three back-to-backs, which would make him the first, I believe Winston said. So that is... And, and we do have four cars. So odd yeah. in a sport to have cars competing against each other. It's kind of like if your kids were all in the same race, right. you just want them all to do well. So we have Kyle Busch, Denny Hamlin, Martin Truex, and Christopher Bell. Four cars of the 40 in the Daytona 500 belong to us. We love them to finish first, second, third. That rarely happens. Yeah. Although it did happen two years ago with us, we finished first, second, and third. And so we'd love for that to happen again. Yeah. Yeah. Four cars and how many uh, NASCAR Cup championships? So we've won five. Uh, we've won five championships uh, over our, our history. Should have been a lot more, but it's kind of a, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough to win them, I will admit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> They're pretty hard. Well, Everybody, please join us next on February 25th. We're going to have Chad Henderson with us from No Dob Brewing, uh, extraordinary person as well. But for today, we just want to, to thank the extraordinary person in our midst right here. You have absolutely, I know I can speak for everybody, you've made our day and I wouldn't have missed it for the world. Thank you, Dave. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me and to everyone else. I really uh, enjoyed it. Hopefully we can do this again in person. At yes. Some point. Soon. Yes. Hopefully soon.